Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry podcast. And today we have another very special guest uh, interviewed by my colleague and our founder and chairman, Jim Weiss. Her name is Sally Sussman. Many of you probably know her already. She is very well known in the industry. She is the Executive Vice President and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Pfizer. She's also the author of a new book called Breaking Through, published by Harvard Business Review back on uh, March 28th. And we get to hear from Sally at South by Southwest this year. And she talked a lot about the book during the session. During today's interview, what you'll get to hear Jim talk to her about is why she wrote the book. You know, what was the sense of urgency? You'll obviously get a lot about, you know, her and Pfizer's role and what happened during the pandemic. They played a major role in sort of helping us to pull out of that. And then looking at her personally and some of her mentors, why communications plays such a critical role as it does today learning from mistakes. Um, there's a really good one. I, I joked during the interview uh, by back channeling that it, it made me cringe. You know, why we think that communications is really the center of the marketing mix today. Uh, finally, you'll get to hear a little bit about Sally personally. This made me smile and I think it will make you smile too. As Jim talks about uh, her Deserted Island album, her first concert, and her favorite guilty pleasure. I think you'll be surprised by all of them. So with that, uh, strap in, take a listen, and we hope you enjoy the show. Sally, great to see you here. Uh, So glad you're participating with me on this podcast today. As you know, um, the Real Chemistry podcast is viewed by many of our colleagues and friends. in marketing and communications. Uh, I think we're gonna have a lot of great takeaways for people um, that they can pin up on their desk wall or you know, wherever they are these days, you know, we don't really know. And uh, you know, I kind of feel like this is a bit of the real housewives of communication, so we can be a little controversial and 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 conflicted, but we'll be real. Um, we'll keep it real. Uh, you know, we all find ourselves really as whether we're agency consulting in-house on the front lines, um, this is such an important book. And how I wanted to start really was, you know, why this book and what's the urgency of the book? Why should everyone read it? Why this book right now? Well, thank you for that question. And it's just great always to see you. You have been such a good friend and strong advisor to me that I'm looking forward to this conversation, Real, Real Housewives of, of Communications. Uh, Why this book now? Because I've been thinking about it for 40 years. Um, These are ideas I've honed and polished and tested, played with for a very long time that crystallized for me during the pandemic. And, you know, you and I spoke many times during that fraught period when I was, you know, put to the test personally and professionally to help Pfizer roll out the novel vaccine and 
uh, try to open minds and move hearts during a period when people were understandably anxious and stressed. And so after writing small pieces, uh, you know, very devoted to my LinkedIn, um, it was really while I was home um, working on the pandemic that the book, I wouldn't want to say it wrote itself, but it wrote pretty quickly during that time. Well, you, I remember answering the call. It felt like a matter of life and death, what we did, which I do well, think. What it, we did it was. Fact. I mean, there's, as you know, there's studies that show that over a million lives in this country were saved by the vaccine. So it was and, and remains um, a very important, worthy uh, pursuit. Well, and, you know, I think all of us agree that getting out of that situation that we were in and of isolation, you know, has other, you know, probably long-term benefits that we have yet to study and measure. So, I mean, no question about that. Anyway, so two of my first clients were Pepto-Bismol and Metamucil. I always like to say I started at the bottom. <laughs> um, it was uh, Procter & Gamble, but it taught me resilience. You know, it really taught me how to you know, work on things that are tough and and get that out there. Um, you know, and I had I I love some of the stories in the book, but I had a mentor who used to redline everything I did, and I had to really feel like it was like being back at, with an English teacher or my mom. Um, anyway, tell me about your early communications career and you know how those experiences shaped you. Well, I'm a big believer in talking about my mistakes, also, Jim, and. They are how we learn and what makes us resilient. And um, I share quite a few of my failures in the book, including some of the embarrassing ones. But one of the early ones in my very first job, I just graduated from college. I was working on Capitol Hill in the mailroom of my home state, United States Senator Tom Eagleton from St. Louis. And, you know, while I was sitting there working in the mailroom, I overheard something, which was uh, his private plans, his thoughts about uh, his retirement. And he was working with his senior advisors to make this announcement. I was a naive uh, kid in the office and had a piece of hot gossip that I told a friend who told a friend who told a friend until the whole thing snowballed out of control. Um, next thing you know, the press was knocking on the senator's door and asking about this rumor of his retirement. In short order, the, the weak link was drawn back to me and it was clear that I had spilled the beans. I apologized to the Senator, but it was never the same between us. And even when I tell the story now, I sweat a little bit because it was a very painful um, learning experience. But I will also tell you, I've never made that mistake since. And I am a citadel of confidence. If you tell me something and ask me to keep it in confidence, you can go to the bank. I will not tell anyone. And in roles like ours, where you're privy to a lot of material information, you're privy to, you know, findings that haven't been released. Um, it's important to know this. And, and I feel that in a way, I'm grateful that I had this painful experience early on because it drove home for me a lesson. And that's been the way I've looked at failure throughout my life. Yeah. I mean, I talk about building real chemistry and I always talk about the idea that this is really a series of mistakes well-made. <laughs> you know, it's, it's to me, one of these things that 
I've always told people, if you're not making mistakes, you're not pushing things. Now that one is a little bit more error and judgment that you were able to, we've all done that. I've done that. But look, we always have ultimately mentors who help us along the way. And in talking recently, um, someone sent me your book. They forwarded it to me. Um, You're going to know this guy, David Beyer. You worked with him along the way. And he said, are you all aware of the book? And I'm like, yeah, we're all aware of the book. We got it, David. But he's been one of my mentors since really early in my career when I first went to Genentech. I mean, he has been, you know, really so there for me for so long. And it's really mentors that make this. And I've had many others. The woman that I I had that was redlining, and it was, uh, you know, a great person, um, Beverly Simons and so many others. I can go on and on. Who were some of yours that really shaped your career? I mean, it's always good to talk about that. And I always tell people, seek out mentorship. Absolutely. And by the way, David Byer is a wonderful human, um, a great healthcare specialist, a very talented writer, and someone I respect a ton. So good to know that mutual. He was <laughs> corralling about you. That's so great. Thinks you're um, the best in the biz. Oh, that's awfully nice. Um, so one of my mentors was a woman named Jeanette Sarkasian Wagner. She was an immigrant to this country. Uh, she, you know, went to public schools, very self-made person, was an editor in some of the women's magazines, and ultimately had a very big career at the Estee Lauder companies and was finishing up as vice chairman uh, for the international business when I started at the company. I was in my late 30s. She was in her early 70s. And I had the great um, opportunity to travel with her to China. And despite our age difference, she buried me with her work ethic and her energy and her enthusiasm. And at the end of the day, I was tired. You know, I was dreaming of going back to the hotel, getting uh, maybe a hamburger from room service and a big soak in the tub. And she says, you know, well, dear, what are you what what are your plans for the evening? Of course, I I didn't know anybody in China had zero plans. Uh, She dragged me by the hand. We were out late. Uh, meeting her old friends, hearing the stories about how they opened the country to the Estee Lauder companies. And through the rest of the trip, it went like this. You know, she had double the energy, her curiosity runs wild. And she, at the end of the trip, she looked at me and she said, dear, jet lag is boring. And ever since then, I have made it my practice wherever I go. Like when I saw you in Austin at South by Southwest, I make sure to take a detour. I walked around the UT Austin campus. I uh, was in pursuit of the best barbecue. You know, it's important that we we pick our heads up from our work and look around and see things and taste and touch and feel. And I'm so grateful to have learned that from Jeanette. She was a tough taskmaster. She too had a red pen like nobody else. Um, But I learned so much from her. I'm so grateful for it. And I'm really focused right now on being that person for others. Um, You know, you and I are sort of at the phase in our lives where we're doing a lot of apprentice training. You know, apprenticeship is the way you learn this skill by being around others who do it. And for your great company, for my wonderful team, um, that kind of hopefully showing people what we think is right and how to go about it 
is really, really gratifying and was the reason, another reason I wrote the book, because when I was locked down, I couldn't do as much teaching and, you know, mentoring as I had wanted to. So I poured myself into this book in hopes of sharing it with a lot of people. Yeah. And it's, you know, and that's what it's doing. It's great. So thank you for doing that. And I know you and I share some apprentices, you know, that have worked for me and now work for you and vice versa. It's great. And it's exactly how we want the world to work. You know, it's, it's really, I like to say, you know, we're creating our mishpucha, right. You know, (laughs) through this process of, of constant mentorship. And I talk about it as being player coaches, right. Cause we like to be in it. And I think what makes you relevant in writing this book is you are still as deep in it as ever. You're not writing it from outside. You're writing it from the front line. And that I think is a difference maker. You know, you are in the heat of it today. I tell you, I learned something every day. Um, Just this past week, these last few days, um, I worked with my boss, Pfizer CEO, Albert Borla, Uh, to have him be one of the first signatories onto that big letter of life sciences leaders talking about the need to support the FDA and not let a judge in Texas or anywhere um, have legal interference into our wonderful practice of having drugs reviewed and approved by the independent gold standard FDA. But, you know, each one of these Each one of these is a turn of the wheel in your mind. What are the risks? What are the opportunities? What's the right thing to do? And I I just felt great about that. And, you know, as you say, we continue, you and I, to be on the front lines and have the opportunity to keep thinking about these really deep and probing and important questions. Yeah, it makes, makes your mentoring relevant and your writing relevant. You're not speaking from some past history. You're speaking from live front and center. And I do think that is something I hope people see with the book. I mean, there's urgency, you know, in the book. And I guess that's something I wanted to talk about. You know, not everyone understands what communications is or how important a role it plays. You know, over the years, how have you described what you do to people? Because, you know, there's this big sort of everybody kind of thinks they're an expert at this. Um, And do you have any pet peeves when people don't understand the role and what it is? I know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can get a little grouchy. (laughs) I can get a little grouchy, too. Uh, You know, my dad asked me not that long ago if I write press releases. Um, And I do write press releases, but it isn't really all I do. Um, So, yes, people, even those close to us, sometimes struggle to understand Um, What I try to do is to set my sights high in describing the work. So I feel as communicators, public affairs people, corporate affairs leaders, we are in essence bridge builders. So how I see my role is building strong bridges between Pfizer and all of our important constituencies inside and outside the company. So of course, You know, employees are an important constituency for for any company, but so too for us are the patient advocacy groups, the regulators, elected officials, key opinion leaders. And by building a bridge, it's not just me putting out there um, our messaging, but also listening and bringing their thoughts and concerns back to the powers that be and the right folks at Pfizer. 
And one of the things I loved about our response to the pandemic is it put me in touch with a group of stakeholders I'd never worked with before. You know, I found myself talking to the Trade Association for Restaurants because they wanted to know how could they safely reopen. Or I talked to leaders in the teachers union who wanted to know when would school be safe again. And so the extent to which we can build wide bridges um, across deep divides with important thought leaders is how I try to explain what I do um, in a way that gives it the, the loft I think it deserves. And it does. I mean, the role of the communicator today is so much more than reporting the news, um, mm-hmm. you know, playing a central role in making the news of our company mm-hmm. client. I mean, we have to have that seat at the table. Um, that consideration matters more in the era of social media where things really do move at the speed of TikTok and tweeting yeah. and all the rest. Um Can you kind of talk about the role you've played at Pfizer's guiding that message? You know, I think you have in ways maybe, you know, not everybody does. And and I think you've had the, you know, probably privilege of being right there in the front. You said, you know, you mentioned Albert, you know, I do think it's important as an example for all other companies to look to and do more. Uh, I know that when I worked at Genentech years ago, they treated it as a front office operation. And I think that's a key differentiator for Pfizer too. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes people ask me, why did you work in financial services, then beauty products, uh, then pharmaceuticals? For me, it was never about what they made so much as did the culture respect and put frontline emphasis into the function. And these three companies all do. For all these companies, you know, what is communicated, how it's communicated, the positioning of the brand, the positioning of the leaders is really important. And I came to Pfizer 15 years ago because I couldn't believe that these companies that make medicine were struggling so much with their reputation. And to be very candid, I spent about 10 years uh, really struggling And, you know, listening to hearing horrible things in focus groups, you know, meeting an incredible amount of cynicism. And when the pandemic hit and Albert stated so clearly his very bold intention to bring forward a vaccine in eight months that, you know, Jim, is usually like a decade long process. I decided I needed an equally bold intention for communications. And so that was the moment that I said, I got I have to strike here and I'm going to do things differently so that in addition to the scientific transformation of mRNA technology and the, the vaccine, that we could have a trust and reputation transformation as well. And these last two years, since our response to the pandemic, Pfizer has ranked as a top 10 global brand, according to Fortune's Most Admired Company. And, you know, the kinds of things that we did differently, far more transparent and candid, putting tons of information out there, taking a different tone in all of our language. You know, we talked about things like science will win, not Pfizer will win, but science will win. The only enemy was the virus, making the impossible possible. All of this, you know, prose and poetry that put the company in a great spot. And I embedded the Wall Street Journal and Nat Geo documentary film crew with us 
along the way. And that was risky and scary. And there were plenty of times that I thought, uh oh, um, I may be filming this debacle. Mm. Now, if we had failed, uh, the, the negative outcome would be worse than a bad uh, news day for Pfizer. It would be, you know, we wouldn't necessarily be here today. But I felt that, you know, being sort of singular and intentional in my work took on new meaning for me during that really intense time. Yeah, I mean, it was really uh, its own new set of lessons um, Mm -hmm. that you hadn't seen before. But maybe what informed you, what prepared you for that? You know, what what could you draw back, you know, from your past? I mean, some of us do crisis well and big things well. You know, we sort of almost calm down when the thing is bigger. And that could be in your personality type, which I know for me it is. But, you know, what what, what were you drawing on, you know, to, to get yeah. you through that? Yeah, I, I thought really deeply about that and tried to convey the multiple positive forces upon me. I have great parents um, who trained me in everything from having to bring a news fact to the dinner table and discuss it as a kid. Um, which I thought was pretty bizarre. And my brother and I (laughs) rebelled against that, but we did it. Uh, They also taught me to look people in the eye, to shake hands, to speak up. Um, I too get deadly calm when things are utterly on fire. And and the the hotter the fire, the the calmer I get. I'm not quite sure what DNA uh, mix makes me that way. But I also learned from great leaders. I've Worked for nine CEOs, reported to six, uh, supported senators and cabinet secretaries, and I watched them really closely. And I learned from them, as well as leaders in the departments in my field, people like Tom Schick and Mike O'Neill, and you know, great, great communicators who were kind to me and let me watch them work. How do they go into the boardroom? How do they go into the CEO office? How do they deliver bad news? You know, it's really a a unique and wonderful profession because there's just learning that comes from everywhere to inform you. And when the pandemic hit, I really felt as if I was built for the moment, you know, um, was grateful to be here at Pfizer. Um, A good friend of mine says the only thing harder than being at the center of a crisis is being on the sideline of a crisis. So I found myself at the center of a crisis grateful to feel like my days were spent trying to help people and giving it all I had. Yeah, I mean, that's good. And speaking of central, you know, we have a friend, mutual friend, Richard Edelman, mentor also, you know, who always used to talk about communications being at the center of the marketing mix and, you know, how critical it is. It's it, it, to your point, it's got to be central, not on the sidelines or an afterthought, because it's really hard, you know, to catch up when you're not right in the middle of it, it's also got to be driving the actual end result. Can you talk about your belief and how you've, you know, functioned over the last five, 10 years, not just recently in that regard with that mindset? Because I do feel, you know, again, Pfizer stands out as a company who knows how those things intersect and how important what communications does is to marketing. The products. Yeah, of course. And and sure, Richard is a giant in our field. The trust barometer is a go-to instrument. Um, I have so much respect and affection for him. 
And, you know, this discussion has been something of a perennial discussion. And I feel the question of, you know, does comms have a seat at the table? That's been asked and answered. We, we have a hot seat at the table. And the question is, are we worthy of it? Do we deserve it? Do we, you know, keep our, our behind in the seat because we're adding value, because we're able to speak truth to power, uh, because we give good advice and we ultimately are a team player, you know, that you, you make your points. Uh, sometimes you convince uh, the boss, sometimes you don't. And either way, you get on board and do what's right for your enterprise. And so I think that, yes, we have the seat and that where we need to put our efforts is to bring the presence, the gravitas, the intellectual, the hard work, the homework that makes people always looking for you when something's happening in your company or your firm. Yeah, I mean, and I was taught in a similar way. I mean, we had I had a boss who um, gave us our nameplates when we had nameplates in offices. And on the front was our nameplate. On the back, it said A plus or nothing, which faced us. And, you know, the idea was you had to earn your seat and your place. And there really things break down when you're not the first call they're making. And you got to earn that. That takes time and trust. I I love those little mantras that inspire us. Leonard Lauder, who was my boss at the Estee Lauder companies, has something on his desk that says good enough is not good enough. Yeah. Um, and that's how he feels. You know, if if it's not perfect in, in his eyes and the quality's not there with his products, he'll throw them out. Um, it, you know, mm-hmm. it's his name on the door. And it breaks down. I mean, we all sort of lose focus if you've spelled the name wrong or you've, you know, it's like you can't get past some of those things. Mm-hmm. And in communications, these little things, obviously the details matter. So, Look, communications plays, we've talked about such an important role in society and life, but you can't react and act on everything. It can get overwhelming. You know, tell us how you decide which issues to weigh in on and go hard on uh, into and which you kind of pass. And I talked about this concept, do delegate dump, you know, as a way to think about, you know, what's really important. How do you do that when you're thinking you know, what to communicate on. Well, I, I would like to answer your question as it relates to how, how do I think about what Pfizer communicates on? What, you know, how do you know sure. when to, to weigh in your, for your company? And with so many social issues on the front door of businesses today, I found I, I didn't have a good metric. Um, I, I was sort of, you know, taking each one as it came. And I, last thing I wanted was for people to think that Pfizer did or didn't engage on something because of what Sally feels. Okay. That's right. never what it's about. So a couple of years ago, I developed a framework. It's in the book. It's, and I it put it on my LinkedIn because I'm happy to share it. And I'd love to engage if, if people think they can suggest other ways. I'm really open to hearing those, but I always ask five questions. First, how does it relate to our purpose? Because when it relates to healthcare, we have a lot of agency. If I'm talking about everything under the sun, you know, you lose the, the, the quality of your and the impact of your voice. Second, how does it impact our most important stakeholders? Which for Pfizer is pretty much patients and employees are way high. Um, and so we think about how any action we take would land with them. The third one 
is how does it relate to our values? And here, I don't mean politics. It's not about are you a liberal or Democrat or Republican or conservative. It's what are our values? Pfizer has four, courage, excellence, equity, and joy. And so we've got that, that lens. My fourth question, and this is really relevant for people on this call, is what are your options for responding? Because so often it's so easy to become reactive. You know, a journalist calls you, they're on deadline, you have to answer. Somebody's circulating a petition, you have to sign or not sign. Another thing I learned during the pandemic was the power of our own pen, the strength of our own voice. And if there's an issue in the, in the zeitgeist, often we will sit down, write a letter to our employees, and then post it on our website. And sit, so we're saying it in our own way, proactively. And then the last question I ask is, what is the price of my silence or what is the price of my inaction? Because sometimes on some issues, uh, racial injustice, violence in schools, you know, silence is just not an option. So I, I use this framework. I use it regularly. It helps me be organized and disciplined and thoughtful about when we do and don't weigh in. So I want to press in on one that you talked a little bit about at South by Southwest when we were there in Austin. Joy. You know, it's it's an unusual one to see. I guess there are different forms. I had one, we called it Choose Happiness. But at the end of the day, this is a really interesting concept. And can you just give us a little bit of um, background on that value and then how you apply it? I think everybody could use a little bit of thoughtfulness around that. You bet. And Choose Happiness is lovely. I really like that a lot. Um, so when Albert was a new CEO, uh, just coming into office in 2019, and he wanted to refresh all of our materials, and we put our whole company strategy on a single piece of paper in what we call our purpose blueprint, has our purpose, breakthroughs that change patients' lives up at the top, an ambition, set of principles, and then at the bottom, we needed to put our values. And we wanted to think fresh, you know, if, if not careful values can just be those things on lucite on the wall that nobody remembers. And I think we had at one point as many as 12 or 13 values in the company and nobody could remember them. You know, having just a short number, a few of them um, really helps bring them home. And we had first courage, then excellence. And you can't run a multinational human health company without those things. Okay. Those are sort of the table stakes. We thought a lot about equity and it's a, you know, it's a big issue in our healthcare world and access to medicine and fair treatment is so important. And we almost stopped there with those three, courage, excellence, equity. And Albert said, you know, we're, we're missing something here. We're missing something here. And we said happiness. And then we said joy. And, and when we said joy, it was almost as if the hair on the back of our neck stood up because we knew we had it, but then we said, well, okay, but what did we mean? You know, we're not going to be dancing on the tables and wearing lampshades on our heads. Um, so we put some, some Except thought. Except when the trial results come through. Yeah, it's, then we do that. Then you the can do ones. that. <laughs> then you can dance on the tables. But as a general way of operating, we said, you know, we want to take our jobs seriously, but not ourselves. We believe that laughter is good medicine too which is a pretty wild thing for a biopharmaceutical company to say. 
that we make a big effort to celebrate our successes. And we try to be spirited in the way we are in the world. So these are the ideas that um, illuminate and bring to life what we mean when we say joy. Yeah, I, terrific concept that I really have stuck with me after hearing about it. Um, you know, one of the practical matters all of us as communicators deal with, particularly in-house, is the balance of the corporate brand versus the product brand and how those complement each other. You know, when you're trying to break through, you know, is there a priority system similar to the one you just described as you think about that when you have that seat at the table with the marketers and the product people that's, that have to move product? Because again, we're in a business. We have a stock to deal with. We have board, shareholders, you know the deal. How do you balance those considerations? What What are some tricks of the trade? Yeah, it's a great question. We're very fortunate at Pfizer to have a great marketing team and a wonderful CMO, and we work very collaboratively together. And we debate, as you debate, the question about, are we a house of brands or a branded mm. house? And forever, um, Pfizer has been a house of brands. But with our corporate transformation, and now Pfizer being a top 10 brand, we are really integrating the corporate brand together with the product brands in our various expressions, digital, advertising, you know, materials, um, because the Pfizer brand is a lift right now. And so it's exciting uh, to work together, communications and marketing, to figure out how to make the most of this important moment. I mean, I, I, I hear you and I often tell folks, look, the company is the product products of the company they they're almost they're completely intertwined they have to work together the way you're saying it so i think you know breaking through on a number of levels um i also think using analytics and you know some of the things we've talked about many times that you're you know at the cutting edge of helps to make it more precise you know in terms of it's not the same for every product for every customer slash patient group that you're going for, especially you all that are doing, you know, now rare disease. So, you know, you're not going to talk to that audience who has a rare disease the same way you're going to talk to an audience that, you know, when you're talking obesity, you know, in writ large. So they're very different ways to come at it. Um, look, you've gone on record saying communications is not a soft skill. It's a rock hard competency, and you know, amen to that. Um, why is being a good communicator a necessity today, especially for leaders? That is the core question. And as you said, my central argument, my number one takeaway from this book is you're foolish if you think communications is a soft skill. And among those nine CEOs that I had the honor to work with and for, look, they're all talented people. I mean, you don't get to be a leader in these times if you don't have the goods, intellectual, work ethic, et cetera. But I've seen the ones that become breakthrough leaders, Ken Chenault at American Express, Leonard Lauder at the Estee Lauder Companies, Albert Borla at Pfizer. They're the ones who have the commitment to communicating, who've you know worked hard to develop their messages, 
who can express an optimistic vision, who, you know, bring the, the gang along with them and are purveyors of hope and optimism and take their, take their companies to whole new places and take their people to, to new places. And so I just felt that it was really not just about communications. And it's why I went with the Harvard Business mm-hmm. Review for my publisher, because they're thought leaders in leadership. And I really wanted to make this a leadership book as much as a communications book. Yeah, hallelujah. I mean, I think, you know, I often say leadership is communications, communications is leadership. You cannot separate them in any way. So thank you for doing that. And it is, you know, so, so critical. So let me pull it into the personal. When, you know, and I'll put you on the spot, when has communications and your skill as a communicator helped you the most in a personal situation? You know, I mean, obviously doing this well in life is also critical. We've talked about the business world, but for right. many of us, we're dealing with life all the time. So absolutely. Yes. And I, I hope you'll forgive me if I tell a story you've heard before. Um, but without a doubt, and you know this because you're a good friend, that um, early in my young adult life, when I realized that I was gay, it was the 1980s. Um, and you know, nowadays being gay is sort of a ho-hum, not that big a deal. But back then, um, it was the AIDS crisis. Many, many people were living lives in the closet. It was before the gay civil rights movement, before uh, Ellen DeGeneres or anything like that. I told my parents uh, and I used, I, I didn't even have the the professional background to know that I was using communication skills, but in hindsight, I was. I made a special time to have this conversation. I went home to do it on their turf, not my turf. I tried to lay out for them how much I love them and why I was telling them this was because we are close and I wanted to remain close. And and when I told them, it was really tough, Jim. And, you know, we had a lot of hard years. um, And I remember my dad telling me that he was worried that I wouldn't have a spouse, uh, children or a career. And in that scary, scary moment, that became my life plan. The the Courage for Candor, which is the title of chapter two of my book, um, talks about how if you have that courage for a courageous conversation in your personal life or your professional life, you may suffer short-term, even mid-term pain, but you will get long-term gain in pride, in peace, in forging authentic relationships that will help you going forward. As you know, you've met my wonderful wife of 35 years. Um, We have a terrific 29-year-old daughter, and I'm super proud of the work I do. But I'm not sure I would have had this drive and this plan if I hadn't, you know, had to go through a fire um, of candor with my family. And I know you've been a great champion for LGBTQ plus people, um, and I know this is a professional a discussion and I've taken it down a personal path, but I feel it's important and I'm, you know, very proud of it all. It's extremely, you know, important and personal to me. My sister, you know, came out. I said similar things that were not informed, um, but, you know, she helped bring me along as many others have in this realm and others. It's the idea, the power of communicating constantly. But I think you raised something about it, which is Look, we don't communicate into a 
receptive environment. And I think it's important for some of us that are working at this every day that it's not supposed to always be easy and it is somewhat two-way now. And it's it's really, we're not talking at people anymore. We're talking with them. And that's a way to think about this. I mean, how do you, you know, view this next phase of how we have to communicate to get change to take place? I mean, you really just showed it in a personal story, but mm-hmm. you talked about public-private partnering and some of the other important areas that we have to get dialogue going and candid conversations going, you know, the more authentic we are in them and they're not supposed to be easy or pretty. Absolutely. And um, look, I worked for two companies, American Express and Estee Lauder that are loved companies. I mean, people go crazy for the marketing. They love the products. They love the people, you know, everywhere I went, people were like, wow, you work there. It's such a great company. And when I found out about the opportunity at Pfizer um, and I talked to friends and family, they're, they're basically like, don't go there. Don't go to Big Pharma. Um, and even when I told uh, my boss's wife at Estee Lauder that I was leaving, she cried. And I may have been in the beginning somewhat naive to how, how hard it was going to be and what, a, you know, what cynicism there is against Big Pharma companies. But I'll tell you, I would never... Uh, go back. And my advice to people is given the choice of taking an easy job or a hard job, take the hard job because it is, you know, these communications, like you're talking about having to go out sometimes into, you know, unfriendly territory or dealing with people who are scared or frightened or cynical. Um, it's, it's made me have to sharpen my skills be a better listener, learn to ask good questions, uh, just be better. And so, you know, if there's a, a client that's harder or a, or a job that's harder and, and you have the opportunity to lean into it, you, you'll be so glad you did. If it was easy, they wouldn't need us. That's right, what I that's say. true. Um, so just a couple more questions, you know, relative to that, you know, communications has been critical to building the firm I built and, you know, over the years and how important it is to build culture. So tell me a little bit about the role of communications in the Pfizer culture. Culture is everything. I mean, it's the fabric that holds an institution together. Um, I partner very closely with Payal Sani, who's our uh, chief of people experience. And we're doing innovative things because wellness is real. The need for wellness is real and and all kinds of support. My favorite um, of the things we're doing here is once a quarter, we have a focus week. And on focus week, you don't, all your standing meetings come off your calendar. You're encouraged to take time. Uh, You're still working, but take time to do the things that, that help stimulate your creativity, restore your wellness, some people say they catch up on their reading. Other people, you know, spend more time on their physical health. Um, and acknowledging that work is is hard, that we come together as individuals to, to support each other, to collaborate, to innovate together is really important. And I am grateful for my focus weeks. It's when I get to do some writing, some reading, some walking, and it's just very important that we make our work cultures 
places people want to be. No, I like that. I have a sabbatical program that I learned and really stole from Genentech as an idea. You know, after six years, uh, folks get six weeks straight off. Um, you know, that was, you know, with the mindset of making scientists think creatively, you know, and come up with some of the great medicines they came up with there. Um, but ours is five years, you get five weeks, but I, I just get such incredible feedback on that. So I think that that's really, a great, that's a great one. Yeah. So the same, but doing it like this, you know, when it's really in the middle of things, is kind of cool uh, too. So great that that exists. So look, writing a book's on my list, but, you know, and I'm not sure when I'll get to it, but hopefully um, before you start book number two, um, if you were to sit down about 10 years from now, what type of new perspective or experience do you think you'd write about? Well, first of all, I'm going to bug you to write that book. Okay. You have at least a one book in here. At least that, one. Yeah. At yeah. least one. And I will be your first pre-order uh, when you right. when you Thanks. when you write that book. I would like to keep writing. Um, I have a few ideas in my head, but right now I'm fully monogamous to this book. Um, and you know, writing it was the first half of the journey. Um, I wrote it myself. That means a lot to me. And now I'm out advocating for it, cheerleading for the profession I love, talking to audiences um, like the ones you've helped me to, to cultivate. And I find it more joyful than I had expected, um, but it requires me, I, I feel, to stay really in the moment here with this book before... So I'm going to dodge your question about another book. I think it's great. I love monogamy. It's great. And I think it's a good thing to be monogamous too. And I think all of us should read it. I encourage you to. Um, I learn things. And, I, you know, sometimes it's just good to be reminded of, you know, some basic fundamentals. You know, the fundamentals matter. I think a lot of folks are worried about what's chat GBT going to do for my, you know, career and life. And that probably makes some things a little easier. I don't know how you feel about it. You know, I, I, I always like I like to try and experiment and play with new technologies. But at the end of the day, I'm going to always go back to the message and the messenger. Uh, content is king. And like you said, you know, the book is full of sort of basic principles that they sound easy, but sometimes it's hard. You know, it's hard to stay curious, to say, say grateful, to to engage all these things. And so, you know, I, I'm excited about technology, but what we do is never going to be replaced by technology. No, I believe the same. Um, so here's a few lightning round questions to, to close us out. What's your favorite guilty pleasure? French fries. Okay. I cannot stop myself in front of French fries. Awesome. Um, what was your first concert? The Grateful Dead. Oh, wow. I don't think we've bonded on that yet. Have we? No, but you know, we're the same. I think we're the same age. So. I mean, I'm seeing Phil Lex in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, you know, at Stanford, the, 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 the amphitheater there, Frost, really cool. That's great to know. Um, and if you were stranded on a desert island, you know, what album would you bring with you if you just had one? Um, if I could only take one album. Wow. I guess it would have to be a Grateful Dead album for sure. Um, you know, I don't know, American Beauty, maybe. I think you could. I think you could survive on that. No, you no could. Question. American Beauty and French fries. 
Okay, I love it. This is beautiful way to, to wrap it up. Um, I'm sure we can have, you know, go on forever, but I think, you know, people's attention spans are probably not that, that long and we need them to read the book, right? Don't listen to us, read the book. I appreciate um, it. And uh, any last thoughts before we sign off? Just to again, um, thank you for the support you give to me, to the book. Please, everyone who's listening, be in touch with me on LinkedIn. I read everything on LinkedIn. And visit me at sallysussman.com, S-U-S-M-A-N.com, and you'll see all that's going on. All right, well, then I will do what you have taught in the book, you know, when people thank you, um, you know, or congratulate you, it's always good to respond. And I just want to say thank you for our friendship and our camaraderie. I don't think it's ever um, something one takes for granted. And, uh, you know, thanks for being a role model for us all. Want more episodes of The Real Chemistry Podcast? Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We post a new episode every Thursday. Visit realchemistry.com for more info.